Oops, sorry, I forgot the Bible. It's <laughs> <laughs> slightly embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. I have it on my phone, but uh, I, I know I'll, it'll freeze and everything will go wrong. I've seen that happen too many times. Well, um, as we come to our final chapter in our series from Luke's Gospel, we're going to finish out the chapter next week. Um, then we're going to have, so this is just some bookkeeping for you all, then we're going to have our one service, 4th of July service at 1030, and then Jeff Falkowski will come and preach here at 9 o'clock on July 11th, and then Dr. R.T. Kendall, if you've seen on the, on the slides, Dr. R.T. Kendall will be preaching both the 9 and the 1030, um, that's the 18th of July, uh, then Dr. Bill Davis, who is a professor at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, as well as Covenant College in Chattanooga. He'll be preaching both the 9 and the 1030 on the 25th. Um, I am actually starting my doctorate program in California in July, and I, so I will not be able to preach uh, for that month. And then Lindsay and I are expecting a baby girl at the beginning of August, and um, so we're going to have a range of our pastoral staff uh, filling in in August while I don't sleep. Um, So between uh, Zach and Jeff and Mark Johnston and Mike Slaughter and Rand Eberhard, um, men of whom I have this great honor and privilege of working alongside of, uh, who teach well and are godly and are wonderful and humble men. Um, and I know that you all will be blessed. Sound good? Okay. Let's read our passage for this morning together in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. That's 1041 in the uh, ESV, ESV Pew Bible, if you have it there. Luke chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Well, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done 
what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, a section of passage that can feel discombobulated, and so we ask that your Spirit would come and help us to understand these things rightly. For we know that your word is beneficial. We know that it is in season and out of season, that it is always for our good. And so we ask that you would give us teachable hearts and that you would give us minds to to focus and pay attention as we sit under this, your word, and seek to apply it in our lives, that it would bring transformation. And Father, as we look today, that it would bring great repentance. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So throughout our series, and even starting as we did with uh, Luke chapter 12, we have seen these two major groups being addressed and being taught. Uh, And the two major groups, of course, are the Pharisees and the disciples. Now, remember, the Pharisees were the people that everyone was looking up to. They were the, the pillars of the community. They upheld their view of righteousness, and people submitted themselves to it. They had zeal for God and, and were trying to return the people to the law of God and away from sinful lifestyles. So in society, they were seen as the good guys. Now, the apostles and the disciples were really just a ragtag a bunch of mostly uneducated followers of Jesus. And so there's great discrepancy between these two groups. Uh, they did not carry the, the prestige that the Pharisees carried. Or in today's language, they did not carry the swagger that the Pharisees carried. See, I'm hip. I'm with it. Uh, and Jesus, through these chapters that we've been looking at, is showing the, the, the faultiness of the Pharisees' worldview and the faultiness of their practices. That it was not a, a, a system that was based on grace and repentance, but rather it was one that was built on, on law-keeping and one that was built on self-righteousness. Their system was what we call the, the ladder-up approach to God. People are on the ladder. They're attempting to climb to God through their own self-righteousness. When Jesus is explaining the ladder-down approach, which is that you on your own will never be able to make it to God, just like at the Tower of Babel, but rather that God needs to come and make relationships right, that God needs to come and do the restoration work. It requires humility and a repentant heart and a spirit with a right perspective. And it requires a willingness to submit to this way of salvation. And so there is this this total reversal of of systems that's taking place. The Pharisees are are hypocrites, Jesus says uh, from chapter 12. He tells the disciples to be honest with man and to be honest with God. The Pharisees were, were looking after their own kingdoms, Jesus said. Instead, seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. 
The Pharisees lived not expectantly of the coming of God, and they treated God's people so poorly. Jesus said to always be ready, for the Son of Man comes at an hour that you do not expect. The Pharisees thought only of themselves and of those that were like them, of each other. Jesus said to have an eternal perspective as it relates to other people, to welcome them in. The Pharisees loved money. Jesus said to use unrighteous mammon to gain friends for eternity in heaven. The Pharisees despised the the sinners and the tax collectors. They thought that the kingdom of God belonged to them and those that looked and acted like them, righteously like them. Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to those who repent. And so today we continue to see this same imagery uh, in this chapter as Jesus once again turns to his disciples and begins to teach them what repentance, a repentance-shaped life looks like. And he starts with repentance-shaped relationships, verses 1 to 4, starting with verses 1 and 2. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than should he cause one of these little ones to sin. Remember, all of this is in the context of of the Pharisees who were grumbling and saying, this man receives sinners and tax collectors and he eats with them. And do you see what that attitude says? It says that these people do not deserve salvation. They do not deserve it. It says that these people have no right to be in the kingdom of God. And within the framework of repentance that Jesus has been dealing with, it could be that he's talking about the temptation here not to repent. Or the temptation to to walk away from the Lord uh, whom you've begun to follow. And the warning, therefore, in verse 2 is to those through whom those temptations come. Anyone who prevents people from investigating Christ and Christianity. Anyone who, who undermines the faith. Think of the threats from family members in the Islamic culture. Or think of the the university professor whose goal is to undermine the faith of his Christian students. That is the warning. It would be better that this person have a millstone tied around their necks and thrown into the sea than cause a little one or a humble believer, a vulnerable person to sin. It's shocking language, that. That that description is so vivid. It's so shocking. But you understand the weight of repentance. Then verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now imagine with me for a moment. A church where sin is rebuked, where sin is taken seriously, 
Whereas the Pharisees simply just lower the bar, as we saw last week, and rather than compare themselves to to God uh, by His standards, they compare themselves with other people. I'm not like them. Or as uh, we're not going to get to chapter 18 of of Luke, but but as you would see in, in chapter 18 of Luke, when the Pharisee and the publican are praying together, and the Pharisee says, Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people like this tax collector. But do you see here, Jesus is showing us a church in which people are quick to repent before God, but also before one another. That is so unusual in our culture. It's so rare to see that, truly. Now, we, we tend to, to, to want to vent We want to vent about things to other people. We want to gossip. Or we want to think poorly of of others without actually addressing the issues with that person. Because it is easier to do that, right? It's hard to speak openly and, and, and honestly with people, especially if there has been a hurt involved. There's a story of an evangelist that was invited to, to preach at a, a small Baptist church in Texas for a revival meeting. And, and when he arrived, he noticed that all of the members of the church were warring with each other. They were fighting. They were, they were angry. And the evangelist, he, he didn't know what to do, and so he just did the only thing he could do. And he got up. And he preached about forgiveness and repentance and, and the life that the believer is called to. And then the, the members of the church and the town turned on the evangelist. And instead of being angry with each other, they were angry with him. And there was a lady who picked up her phone and she was going to call this man and she was going to tell him that he needed to get out of town and he didn't need to be here and he was causing more problems. And her son came to her and said, you know what he's saying is actually right what he's been preaching is actually truth, and we need, to, we need to actually listen to what he is saying. And so then the next night, he, he got up, and once again, he, he did his uh, evangelist, uh, evangelistic uh, preaching and, and, and taught the people. And then at the end, they opened the floor for, for testimonials, and that lady stood up, and she confessed this bitterness that she had towards another lady who was there. And then that lady got up, hugged her, forgave her, and then all of a sudden the room was filled and people were standing up and asking for forgiveness from one another. And and in all honesty, revival broke out in this small town in Texas because of this forgiveness and this honesty. Do you remember what the prodigal son said? Chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, I have sinned before heaven and against you. If we were to know what it is to have humbled ourselves and turned to God in repentance of sins, if we have grasped the seriousness and the weightiness of sin such that Jesus died on the cross for that sin, for our sins, then surely as we go on in the Christian life, We will be those who take sin seriously. When we see others sin, we won't just think that's really none of my business, but rather out of love, out of love 
you can go to that person and rebuke them, gently rebuke them. Likewise, we will be people who are quick to repent of our own sin, at, at, at which point we will forgive others, willing to forgive and go on forgiving, not just one time, but seven times. And really, in Matthew chapter 18, when, when Peter says, Lord, are we to forgive them seven times? And he says, well, no, Peter, actually, 70 times seven. It's an infinite number. It, it, it's only genuine repentance that can shape relationships like this. Think again of the prodigal son and that the father's welcome. How fitting for a Father's Day celebration. And, and, and the father says you know, to the servants, bring the best robe. Bring the, the family ring. Bring shoes. It, it's, a, it's symbolic of, of, of complete restoration to the position he once had within the family. If we have repented, if we have put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we should be people who are quick to forgive others. Only when we are conscious of our own sin, though, are we able to forgive. When we recognize that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Again and again and again, seven times and, and more. Just as God in His kindness keeps forgiving us. Unlike the Pharisees who have such an exalted view of themselves who want nothing to do with sinners or, or anyone in that category. Do you see how repentance shapes church relationships and therefore the entire culture of a church? The opposite, of course, is that we would harbor grudges or that we would mope or sulk or that we would try and exact revenge. Or we would ignore the situation altogether and hope that it would just go away. A divided church where sin is not taken seriously. One former president of a Bible college in Australia says that 80% of church and pastoral problems in a local church wouldn't exist if churches took these verses to heart. 80% of church and pastoral problems in a local church wouldn't exist if churches took these verses to heart. Well, a practical application. I don't know if it gets any more practical than, than to consider who you may, after removing the plank from your own eye, go and, and speak to and, and gently rebuke because you have a genuine desire to see repentance and you have a genuine desire to see restoration and forgiveness. Is there someone that you need to forgive? It's a great reminder to us of the importance of real face-to-face -face interactions. These aren't the types of things that you can do online. You can't do it on social media. Don't. Just don't, go to, don't read social media. Don't read the, the comment section or you will find yourself sinning, thinking things that you shouldn't be thinking because, because that's what we do. And you, you, you create personas and personalities of people you don't know. 
But if you're going to rebuke and ask forgiveness or forgive, you need to do that in person where you can express your love and your care or feel the love and the care from a fellow believer. And and I think we're all having to relearn that after COVID. Relearn how to do church again. Relearn how to relate to one another because real church is messy. It always will be in part because we are all sinful people but also because Jesus calls all sorts of people to make up his kingdom. We all don't look the exact same. We don't act the exact same. We don't all have the same background. Therefore, there are so many opportunities to, to, to misunderstand one another. There are so many opportunities to, to, to fall out with, with one another. And the enemy knows that. Our church in Sydney, we had people from Asia, South America, uh, Europe, the UK, America, from all over the place. And there were so many opportunities uh, for, for, to miss out on cultural cues or, or nuances or verbiage or, 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 or even body language. And so there had to be something that united all of us, that kept us grounded, that kept us together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes about giving up his freedoms for the good of others. Repentance-shaped relationships. Then, skipping ahead a bit, verses 7 to 10, repentance-shaped service. Repentance-shaped service. The parable here makes the point that the disciple of Jesus is never more than a servant of Jesus. We are never anything more than a servant of Jesus. Paul Paulos doulos, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. That is not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. And yet it is easy to misread this parable as if Jesus is the ungrateful master whose servants have been working in the fields all day and then he expects them to carry on the work when he comes home. Cook the meal, serve the meal, and there's not even a thank you, verse 9. Well, in Luke chapter 12, verse 37, which we looked at, who knows how long ago, when we started our series, and we read this self-description of Jesus. Now think about this in relation to the parable. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. The one who will serve his people in the new creation. At the heavenly banquet, and Jesus is serving his people. He is the servant king then carries on that serving into the new creation. The point of the parable in Luke 17 is simply that the servant continues to serve. Why? Because he is the servant. Now notice again that it is repentance that shapes this attitude of ongoing service to Jesus in the disciple. It's the very attitude of the product that the prodigal son has, in, in, again, in chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Treat me as one of your servants. 
And the Pharisees are more concerned with what others think of them than of actual service for the kingdom of God. The life of the genuine disciple is shaped by the humble, committed, costly, lifelong service of the Lord Jesus to us. Now imagine again with me a church that is shaped by repentance as we all commit to serving the Lord Jesus together. No sense of one-upmanship or, or, or competition. No sense of first and second class Christians. No in crowds as opposed to fringe people. None simply attending without serving but zealous to serve one another. Zealous to serve the Lord Jesus and continue to serve Jesus. Whether at church or when you're at the workplace or with your friends or at home. But it's also a warning to some. If we are beginning to display the attitude of the Pharisees. Think of the major names in, in ministry uh, who had tremendous falls with, uh, with, with moral failing or, or whatever it was. What they seemed to have forgotten was that they were nothing more than servants of Jesus. And they began to see ministry as a means of being served. Or as a means of controlling people other than serving them, rather than serving them. And we need to heed the warning. We need to look at our own hearts. Do we come to church to be served by others or to serve? If we have children, do we, do we come for them to be served? Or do we come to serve other people's children? Now that could take a lot of different Roots and routes and facets and all that sort of thing. But, but it's a question that we should be balancing out in our heads. Service is the, is the absolute antidote to pride, right? It's the antidote to grumbling, the very thing that the Pharisees are doing. I grumble when I forget that as a disciple, I'm never more than a servant. That's just the attitude I'm naturally going to go to. But of course we are unworthy servants. Think of what the opposite of what's the opposite of unworthy? The opposite of unworthy is entitled. Think of how horrible that attitude is. In fact, entitlement fights against allowing the gospel to do its work. Because then you cannot have a humble heart, and then you cannot receive the kingdom of God because you think you're entitled to it, which is the first step in the process that you need to make. The great banquet, in the new creation, Jesus himself will be serving us. Doesn't that inspire us to, to, to grasp every opportunity that we may have to serve him? Well, repentance-shaped relationships, repentance-shaped service. Finally, repentance driven by faith. Now, we've done these out of order, and I've done that on purpose. Not because I don't think Luke did a good job. I just, for my own brain, thought I needed to do that. Repentance driven by faith, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, increase our faith. Increase our faith, Jesus. Why, does he, why do they ask that? Why do they ask that for that? It's because the standard he's given them of forgiveness is a standard that seems and is impossibly 
hard to reach. It's too high. Who could have relationships like this? Who could, who could forgive like this? Well, verses 5 and 6 show us how it is possible to live the repentance-shaped life, the repentance-shaped discipleship that Jesus is talking about. And the answer, verse 6, what is he saying? It's not about having more faith, but having faith. A mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds. A mulberry tree is, is probably one of the largest trees in those days. They, they have deep roots which sink down deep into the soil. We always think it's about the amount of faith that you have rather than where your faith is placed. You hear people say, well, I wish I had his faith. I wish I had your faith. Faith in Scripture is only ever means trust. Trust on the basis of evidence. It's not a mysterious force. It's not a spiritual power that some have and others don't. It's certainly not the amount of faith you had. It's simply where your faith is placed. Looking at giants in the faith and thinking, I wish I had their faith. That can do us a, a deal of harm. It, it can keep us from serving in a particular area if you feel like someone is doing it better and you think, well, then I won't do it. Or it can prevent you from, from uh, reaching out to, to friends and neighbors with the good news of the gospel because you think, I am not equipped to do that. I, I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough of the right answers. I don't have enough of the... Because someone else will be better at it. What a, what a, what a terrible excuse to, to make. It's not about more faith. It's simply having faith. I think about when the Enneagram came out. And everyone was using the, the, the personality profiles to say that this is who they were. But the problem with that is that you then make excuses for, for sin or for attitudes to, to the way you respond to things. Well, that's just who I am. I'm a nine. I'm a six. I'm a two. I don't actually know what any of these numbers mean. But we think again of the prodigal son. The person who has genuinely come to Jesus in repentance of faith. Jesus is saying we'll live like this because real repentance is like a river rather than a pond. A pond stagnates. A, a, a river is a blessing and it moves on. In the same way, repentance is it's not something that just marks the beginning of your Christian life and then it just sits there at the beginning. It is something that is there to be a blessing in every area of the Christian life. And, it, it, and it's there to shape our Christian life. And, the, and it's there to shape the, the, the culture of our church. And in the way we function together. Jesus is putting the spotlight on our church communities. He's putting the spotlight on our church cultures. Our friendships, our relationships. And he's saying, will you play your role? Will you play your part at the Church of the Apostles? Will you have these attitudes if you consider yourself a disciple of mine? Will you see 
what I'm calling you to? Will you see what, that, what a healthy, vibrant community will look like? That's where people are invited and come in and hear the good news and receive forgiveness and receive grace and understand these things. And who knows what the Lord might do with that. Well, let's pray together and ask that he would help us be a community such as this. Father, we know that we are not a perfect church. We do not claim to be as such. In fact, I think of Charles Spurgeon and the lady who came up and told him he was, she was leaving his church to find the perfect church. And he said, Madam, when you find it, please don't join it. You'll ruin it. Because this is the reality is that we are people who still struggle with sin, but at the same time, we are people who have been redeemed by our God and Savior. And so we are striving in this life. And we're not called to strive on our own, carrying the banner by ourselves, but we are called into a community that, that encourages us, that lifts us up, that rebukes us, that forgives us. And those things are hard because we're fearful. And sometimes we we want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But it is that true grace-driven, forgiven community that does the most good because that is what you have called us to. And so, Father, we ask that you would break us, that you would help us to see our failings in our own lives, that we would not measure ourselves against the person next to us or across the street from us, but we would measure ourselves against your perfect law. And then when we find ourselves wanting, that we know we can come to the cross for forgiveness, but that we also understand that we've broken relationships and that we would go to those people we would either call them out where we see incongruity or that we would confess our own failures, that we would ask for forgiveness, and that, Father, that those would be the things that mark us. Because to stand firm requires quite a bit, but that does not come from ourselves, but it comes from you. It's your grace and your mercy that's poured out on us. And so, Father, my prayer is that people, when they hear about members of the Church of the Apostles, they would recognize that it is a church of people who are filled with grace, who forgive one another, who love one another deeply in a biblical way. Father, help us to see these things. Help us to understand these things. Bring that to us through sanctification, through that shed blood of Christ that gives us the ability to do these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.